Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I have worked manual labor jobs for my entire life. I have worked as a pastor, and I am taking my first steps into the exciting world of academics. In this podcast, we will dive into history, theology, current events, and perhaps even other topics along the way. In this series, we will explore the American Civil War, the foundational event in the United States' rise from a brand new nation to full-fledged world power. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Boy, I'm not sure I like the sound of my own voice there. I might be, <clears throat> I might re-record that intro. We'll see. Uh, I might stick with it for a few more episodes until I get caught up. Um, I want to make a little edit to that intro, the exciting first steps into academia. Um, I want to thank Neosho County Community College because they've been working with me. Uh, they, they analyzed my master's level credits from seminary and decided that I was uh, qualified to teach history classes. And then we kept uh, open uh, our eyes open to see if there were options to, to teach history classes, and there just haven't been. But they said, well, why don't you teach a lifetime learning class? So I thought that sounded like a great idea. So I've been teaching this the Civil War class uh, to uh, senior citizens and and one young man who is uh, joining the class. We've been having a blast. Uh, it's a small class, but that's that's great. I'm getting the experience I need, and hopefully one day I'll be able to turn turn this into a, a career uh, teaching at a community college or a small Christian college. That's that's the hope. So uh, keep your fingers crossed. Wish me good luck, and uh, hopefully that'll work out. Um, these first couple of podcasts here in a little while. Uh, I think about the sixth episode, you'll notice that we the, the format of this will change from a, a sit-down podcast, just one man and a mic, and, and you'll actually start to hear audio from the classes that I taught because uh, I finally had the presence of mind to bring an audio recorder with me. It's an ancient audio recorder. The quality is not wonderful, but many thanks to Audacity, the um, software for audio editing, I have been able to, to go through the, the first of those classes that will be coming out in a few days uh, of the uh, class audio for the uh, lecture about secession momentum, the momentum as states began to secede between the election of Abraham Lincoln and the uh, and Fort Sumter and, and the few weeks immediately after Fort Sumter. Uh, Audacity has, has made it a, a workable audio, so we'll be, we'll be having that that classroom audio available. And then the, the most of the podcasts after that until the end of the class should be not one man and a mic type podcast, but should be uh, classroom audio. So hopefully it'll be a little bit different vibe. Maybe, maybe it'll be something you enjoy a little more. Uh, I know I do. Uh, I tend to enjoy the give and take of a classroom more than just me staring at a computer screen. But Nevertheless, uh, I'm enjoying the class, and I'm enjoying uh, podcasting as well. Uh, what I'm not enjoying is going back over my notes that I've written months ago. Uh, I've already complained about it. You guys have heard me complain about it. Uh, this week's notes are 
especially atrocious. I want to um, slap past Will for his uh, just sloppy, sloppy notes on this one. But we're going today. We're going to discuss the border war. Uh, that's the nickname for the uh, conflict between Missouri and Kansas. Uh, other nicknames uh, are the uh, bleeding Kansas. Um, the Ruffians or the Bushwhackers versus the Jayhawkers. That's where we get the nickname for the University of Kansas. Go National Champions 2022. Um, the, K- the KU Jayhawks. Basically, the border war was, uh, it involved Missouri, but it actually wasn't a lot of Missouri versus Kansas as if a Missouri unit with Missouri commanders funded by the Missouri government was facing off against uh, a Kansas territorial army with commanders and organizations. Instead, the fighting was much more in towns and pastures. It was small groups of people, farmers versus other farmers. Uh, There would be groups like posse-sized groups that would come from Missouri and fight. uh, But there really weren't a whole lot of large-scale battles. In fact, it might surprise some people, but the casualty numbers were were actually quite low. I mean, we're talking about civilians fighting civilians, so this murder rate is um, kind of atrocious, but compared to, like, just real quick, let's take a look at a couple of battles in in the actual Civil War. At the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest one-day battle, uh, there were 2,108 Union soldiers killed and 12,000 plus total casualties. On the Confederate side, there was 1,567 killed and and a little over 10,000 total casualties. Uh, Even the first battle of the war, First, First Bull Run, also known as First Manassas, the numbers were a lot less, but we're still talking 481 killed for the Union, 387 killed for the Confederates. In comparison, in the entire border war, in the entire period called Bleeding Kansas, there were about 20 to 30 killed who were on the pro-slavery or the Missouri, you know, the, the border ruffians who would come over from Missouri. So the pro-slavery Kansans and the Missouri border ruffians, there was about 20 to 30 killed with about 80 or so total casualties. Casualties and deaths for the pro-union, well, actually, we're not talking about union versus confederacy yet, so we'll say the anti-slavery, free state, Kansans, was about 100 to 200. Uh, And that number's disputed. It's probably a lot less than that, but that's that's the higher range of of uh, possible deaths and casualties for the free state Kansans. We know of 56 fully documented political killings that happened during the Bleeding Kansas period. That's according to the Kansas Historical Society. Compared to the thousands and thousands that would be killed in in just single battles in the American Civil War. So what caused the conflict that became the border war, became Bleeding Kansas? I think it's best to trace it back to the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. This was the child of Stephen A. Douglas, whose uh, fame uh, comes from his debates with Lincoln 
the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Uh, Douglas actually won. I, I don't know if he won the debates. There really weren't winners of the debates, but his party earned more. The Democrats earned more seats in the Illinois legislature. So Douglas won that election. He became the senator. Abraham Lincoln actually lost that election. It's unfair to say that Douglas was only uh, famous because of the debates. He was a highly accomplished politician in the middle part of the 1800s. His political stances and attitudes towards racial harmony and, and civil rights was totally out of step with modern, even modern conservatives, even strong modern conservative, you know, modern, uh, modern people who are strongly conservative. Uh, for that matter, Abraham Lincoln and, and all but the most radical abolitionists probably could fall into the same category. It was a, it was a different time. Stephen Douglas introduced the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and this is what he was trying to do. Every state that had come into the uh, Union after the initial foundation of the uh, of the country with the 13 colonies, and then I believe that uh, Vermont was added, so it was, it was a, an even number. So 13 or 14 states to start with. Well, at, from that point on, as they were adding states, they tried really hard to add states two at a time so that there would be a free state and a slave state that would come in uh, at virtually the same time. So, for instance, uh, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, part of that compromise was that Missouri would come in as a slave state and Maine would be cut off at, from Massachusetts. It was actually a part of Massachusetts at the time and become another free state. And so, and I'm not entirely sure if these were the pairings, but you might have uh, like Louisiana and Wisconsin come in at the same time. Or you might have Tennessee and Indiana come in at the same time. So you would have a, a slave and a free state coming in to keep that balance in the, especially in the Senate, but to keep that balance in the federal government between the North and the South and between the free states and the slave states. By the time you get to Kansas, Nebraska, and once you start, uh, once we start turning the Western territories into areas that, that would soon become states, the opportunities for more slave states started to dwindle. Even after the Mexican-American War, uh, a lot of the territory that we gained from Mexico, although it was technically south, if you just look at a map and a compass, uh, a lot of it really wasn't well-suited for the kind of slave economy that persisted in the Deep South. And so the, the opportunities for more slave states were starting to dwindle. Stephen A. Douglas thought he had a solution. The Nebraska Territory, which is now Kansas, Nebraska, and I think some other territories that eventually get cut off and added to uh, Colorado, Wyoming, etc. But the Nebraska Territory could be divided in half with the northern Nebraska uh, Territory be, being turned into the free state of Nebraska. And he had hoped for the southern Kansas territory to be turned into the slave state of Kansas. I mean, after all, Missouri and Kansas are just right there next to each other. They've got more or less the same uh, geography, uh, same agricultural prospects, especially on the eastern side of, of the state of Kansas. So surely Kansas could become a slave state. That was that was Stephen Douglas's thought process. Now, to Douglas's credit, he didn't outright call for Kansas to be made a, a slave state. He called for popular sovereignty. 
He believed that it was the residents of the territories that should be allowed to choose the direction of the, the uh, territory and eventually the state, whether or not it would allow slavery or not. And he believed that Nebraska would naturally uh, ban slavery and Kansas would naturally accept it. This was a direct uh, this was a direct refutation, is that the right word? It was a direct uh, challenge to the Missouri Compromise of 1820. The Missouri Compromise had established, repeal, that was the word I was looking for. It's, it's a, basically a repeal of the Missouri Compromise, which established 36 minutes, excuse me, 36 degrees, 30 minutes north as a line dividing all U.S. territories, except for Missouri. Missouri was allowed to be the exception. So everything north of that line would free state and everything south would be slave state. Kansas lies entirely north of that line. So it sh according to Missouri Compromise, it should have been a free state. Um, now, popular sovereignty had been tried in 1850, a few years earlier for Utah and New Mexico. But Douglas was sure that where Utah and New Mexico was unlikely to become uh, a, a place to raise cotton or tobacco, or sugar, or another cash crop, that Kansas perhaps could raise those cash crops. And so it, it had a much greater chance of becoming uh, a slave state. What the Kansas-Nebraska Act did was it set up an immigration rush and then eventually a fight between the immigrants who, and why I'm using the word immigrant mostly here for internal immigrants, Americans moving to the American territories of Kansas and Nebraska. Um, it set up an eventual fight between the immigrants who in can, into Kansas who wanted Kansas to be a slave state and those who wanted it to be free. Let's look at some of the elections during this period. In November 1854, they were choosing the non-voting congressional delegate for Congress. And the winner was John Wilkins Whitford, a Democrat who was pro-slavery. By the way, let me take a second here and explain something. Sometimes you'll see on Facebook memes that say something like uh, the original KKK was almost 100% Democrat and that the 13th Amendment banning slavery was opposed by so many percentage of Democrats, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, that's used by people who are trying to say that, that the Democrats oppose common sense civil rights reforms and therefore you should immediately start thinking of uh, John F. Kennedy to Joe Biden and everyone in between. That's not fair or accurate. The political parties in the United States have continuity only in the fact that they are organizations that persist. The organizations never, well, some of them have. The Whig Party has ceased to exist, the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists, the Know-Nothings, they all cease to exist. But the two parties that we have today, the Democratic Party as an organization, was founded during the administration of Andrew Jackson. And depending on how you look at it, you could say it was founded by Thomas Jefferson. I think it's more accurate to say that Thomas Jefferson's Republican Party, that's what it was called at the time, uh, evolved into the party that Jackson then organized, Jackson and, and Martin Van Buren organized into the Democratic Party. That party still exists today, but has undergone several significant cultural shifts since then, as far as what they support why they support the things that they support. Um, significant changes usually happen at significant points in, 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 uh, in American history. So, for instance, 
the Democrats went from a small uh, government party to a big Democrat party, or excuse me, a small government party to a big government party around the time of the Great Depression, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt introduced the the New Deal. And since then, the Democrats, with some exceptions, have mostly been pushing for a welfare state with more power for the federal government to help the uh, the poorest and the, and the members of society that, that tend to be oppressed or uh, tend to struggle to meet their needs. Um, the Republican Party has, at certain points in, in the past, has been the party of civil rights, like the quote-unquote radical Republicans, uh, like Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner during the American Civil War. They were uh, Sumner was a senator. Thaddeus Stevens was a member of the House of Representatives. Um, they were the liberals of their day. And so there was a time when the Republican Party was the liberal party. Well, obviously today that's not the case. The There are a handful of Republicans who could be described as liberal, but for the most part, those are actually moderates. Um, the Republican Party has shifted to become the conservative party, and that's fine. Natural evolution of political parties is a natural thing. It's not something to, to uh, get all, all that upset about. And if you are upset of the direction your party is going, just switch parties or form a new one. It's... You, be an American. Use your your free uh, your, your your freedom to to make those kind of decisions if you wish. Um, but as far as the organizations, the Democratic Party that was founded during the uh, Jackson administration and the Republican Party that was founded in the decade leading up to Abraham Lincoln's uh, election in 1860, so through the 1850s, the Re uh, Republican Party was founded. Um, those organizations have existed even though they've changed and what they stand for and why they stand for the things that they stand for, uh, those parties have, have existed in continuity since the early and the mid 1800s. Okay. So back to our elections, November, 1854, the John Wilkins Whitford Democrat who was pro-slavery was elected as a non-voting congressional delegate in Congress. We still have non-voting congressional delegates for Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, American Samoa, and our other territories. Um, what happened in this election was that there was a flood of pro-slavery settlers who had believed rumors of a flood of abolitionists coming into uh, Kansas. And furthermore, there were over in this election, there were over 1,500 known Missouri residents who came over to vote and then returned to Missouri. So not immigrants, not people who are moving from Missouri to Kansas, but Missouri people who took a day trip to go vote in a state they did not live in. Certain areas started to develop uh, as pro-slavery hotbeds, such as Leavenworth, Atchison, and Lecompton. Now, the there was an organization called the New England Emigrant, spelled with an E, Emigrant, the New England Emigrant Aid Society. They wanted, they had, their goal was to get 20,000 free state settlers in Kansas. But by the end of 1855, they had only successfully uh, immigrated 1,200. So they weren't anywhere close to their goal. And they certainly didn't make the goal by November 1854. But free state settlement of the state 
continued steadily, whereas pro-slavery settlers leveled off quickly. There was a rush of pro-slavery settlers, for one thing, because Missouri was right next door, so there were some Missourians who came to Kansas to, to, uh, to settle down, and uh, the other internal immigrants from Georgia, and Texas, and Tennessee, and other southern states had come quickly to try to counter the expected wave of northern immigrant, internal immigrants into Kansas. Let's look at the next election on March 30th, 1855. Here, another flood of Missouri residents swayed the vote. And so 37 of the 39 representatives to the territorial legislature were pro-slavery. Virtually all, not virtually, literally all of the legislatures, except for the representatives from Riley County, were pro-slavery. That's the election of March 30th, 1855. Andrew Reeder was the uh, established as the governor. I believe he was already the governor by this point. He was established as the governor before this vote because as a territory, the governor is actually appointed by the president, not elected by the people, not yet. So Andrew Reeder had been appointed as the territorial governor by President Franklin Pierce. Pierce is an interesting uh, man. He was from New Hampshire, a very north northern state, a state that's pretty much almost a Canada. Uh, but he was notoriously pro-Southern in his outlook. Um, to, I'll give him credit. During the Civil War, he never act publicly, actively supported secession. But as president, he made decisions that were decidedly pro-Southern, including the appointment of Andrew Reeder, a pro-slavery man, as the territorial govern governor of Kansas. However, Reeder upset Pierce and the pro-slavery settlers because he invalidated parts of that election that were obviously fraudulent. So on May 22, 1855, uh, another election was held to fill those uh, invalidated seats. And eight of the 11 went to anti-slavery candidates. That's great. That's, 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 a, that's a massive anti-slavery win. However, Reader didn't invalidate the whole election, just the obvious fraudulent ones. So that still left the Kansas legislature with a 29 to 10 pro-slavery advantage in 1855. On July 2nd, 1855, the legislature meets. They meet in a little town called Pawnee. In fact, I cannot find Pawnee on the Apple Maps function on my iPhone. That's how small it is. I think it, it, is, it is nothing more now than a historical marker. I think the, the, the area, the, the land that had been the town of Pawnee has been subsumed by uh, the Fort, is it Fort Riley, I believe? Uh, has been subsumed. So when the legislature met on July 2nd, 1855, the 29 to 10 majority, the first thing they did was they went ahead and invalidated the May election. So they went back to that ex extraordinary pro-slavery number with all but Riley County representing pro-slavery factions. They also voted to move the capital to Shawnee Mission, 
they adopted a slave code for the territory. And then in Shawnee Mission, they once again decided to move to Lecompton, where the pro-slavery government would take root until finally, uh, five years later, uh, Kansas would become a free state. So the free staters, they decided to elect their own legislature, and that legislator, legislature uh, settled in Topeka. The reason Kansas or Topeka is still the uh, capital of Kansas is because the free staters won. I mean, in the end, they, the free staters are the ones that established Kansas as a free state and as a loyal state to the Union in 1860. The free state legislature elected Charles L. Robinson as governor. So for a time, Kansas uh, as a territory had two legislatures and two governors in two capitals. Well, Andrew Reeder was fired by President Pierce and was replaced by an even stronger pro-slavery man, Wilson Shannon. Pierce declared the Topeka government as insurgents in his 1856 State of the Union address. By declaring them as insurgents, he's basically declaring them as uh, terrorists you know, the term we would use uh, today in post 9-11 world as terrorists. So Congress appointed a commission to look into the situation. And in, uh, on July, in July of 1856, they released a report. And the report concluded that if only Kansas residents had voted, if Missouri residents were somehow kept from cheating, then the anti-slavery forces would have won and they would have won big. So Congress decided to declare the Lecompton government as illegitimate. So now you have a situation where the White House has declared one territorial government as insurgents and Congress has declared the other territorial government as illegitimate. The turmoil meant the turmoil that raised here, because there were members of Congress who didn't support this. There were Democrats and pro-Pierce men and those who were strongly pro-slavery. So there was turmoil within Congress. And the turmoil within Congress meant that Topeka's first attempt at a constitution failed. On December 21st, 1857, uh, Lecompton, the Lecompton government produced a constitution. By this point, we have an, a new president, James Buchanan, but unfortunately, Buchanan, who's not qu from quite as far north as Pierce, he's not from New Hampshire, he's from Pennsylvania. But once again, we have a northerner with southern tendencies. Uh, Buchanan endorsed the Lecompton Constitution. And when the Lecompton Constitution went to a vote of Kansas residents, the election was a landslide. Kansas residents voted in favor of the Compton pro-slavery constitution, 6,226 to 569. The reason is because the free staters had boycotted the election. Oh, and also Missourians cheated anyway. They didn't need to. The free staters had boycotted. They didn't need to cheat. Oh, and not only did Missouri residents who had no intention of settling into Kansas as long-term residents of Kansas, not only did they uh, vote, but there was also Threats of violence. Once again, threats of violence against voters who already had declared that they were boycotting the election. Violence if they did indeed vote. So Congress, it was just a mess. Congress forced another vote on August 2nd, 
1858. Uh, this time, the Lecompton Constitution lost 11,812 to 1,926. The radical anti-slavery men in Leavenworth, remember I mentioned Leavenworth is a hotbed of pro-slavery uh, sentiment. Uh, it, it, things were changing in Kansas so quickly that already Leavenworth had become a hotbed of, even though it's right there on the border of Missouri, uh, Leavenworth became a hotbed of anti-slavery forces. So radical anti-slavery men in Leavenworth presented their own constitution. That uh, constitution would have extended the right to vote to all men, including blacks and Native Americans. That constitution died in Senate committee. It was never brought up to a vote. Then Wyandotte, uh, a committee or, or a group in Wyandotte produced yet another anti-slavery constitution. And once again, this constitution passed not, a, not as much of a landslide, but pretty much double the results. The, the anti-slavery forces won 10,421 to 5,530. This was probably the most legitimate of all the elections, these elections for these various constitutions. Uh, but once again, this constitution was left, left to die in Senate committee. But something interesting happened. This constitution was left to die in a committee, a committee that was still in force as Southerners began to leave the Senate as their states were seceding from the Union. And so Northerners immediately recognized their, their opportunity. They brought it out of committee, brought it up to a vote, and the Senate accepted the state constitution that was, that was uh, presented by a Wyandotte committee and uh, that had already passed election. So Kansas became a free state as the first act of a post-secession Congress. So those are the elections leading up to it. Let's talk a little bit about the violence that surrounded this uh, time. Um, there was something called, and you'll see terms like the, this or that war, the war of this county or whatnot. Like I said, we're not talking about full-scale wars here. We're talking about only 56. Now, so 56, that's a lot. But we're talking about 56 recognized political killings. Um, and probably somewhere around 100 to 200 total killings, maybe 100 to 250, somewhere in that range. The first one is called the, and I'm going to mispronounce this, the Wakarusa War. This happened in Douglas County, where the pro-slavery man, Franklin Coleman, killed the free stater, Charles Dow. Douglas County Sheriff, by a man by the name of Samuel Jones, arrested yet another free stater, instead of Coleman, even though everybody knew that Franklin Coleman was the one who had killed Dow, the sheriff arrested somebody he knew to be innocent of the murder. So free staters formed a posse and they liberated the man who was falsely imprisoned. So Governor Shannon, the uh, one appointed by the president, uh, the anti or the pro-slavery governor, the Governor Shannon called for a Kansas militia, which ironically was filled almost exclusively by Missouri residents. 
Governor Robinson, the anti-slavery governor, he raised a Lawrence militia that was led by a man by the name of James H. Lane. This led to a siege and then a counter-siege of Lawrence. But there was only one fatality, a man by the name of Thomas Barber, who was a free stater, on December 6th, 1855. The next uh, outbreak of violence we'll talk about is the Sack of Lawrence on May 21st, 1856. During the Sack of Lawrence, by the way, there were several events that happened around Lawrence, and sometimes it's easy to get the events conflated. In the 1856, the, the May 1856 action, the Free State Hotel, as well as two anti-slavery paper, newspapers, were destroyed. When you say papers destroyed, you're talking about like the offices where the, the papers were printed and distributed. Also, a famous cannon that had been used at, in the Mexican-American War was stolen. And guess who led the Sack of Lawrence? County Sheriff. Sam Jones, the same Sam Samuel Jones who had earlier arrested a man he knew hadn't committed the murder of Charles Dow. This time he leads the sack of Lawrence, of, of a town in his own county. Now the next event doesn't actually happen in Kansas, and it doesn't involve Kansans or Missourians for that matter, but was directly related to Kansas because Charles Sumner, the senator gave a speech, a multiple-day speech, called The Crime Against Kansas. In that speech, Sumner used some not-choice words and insulted Senator Andrew Butler, describing Andrew Butler as a, a Democrat from South Carolina, as a person who used almost pretty much sexual language, kind of describing Butler and other pro-slavery senators as caressing and deflowering the fair virgin that was Kansas with the harlot slavery. It was, it was quite an inflammatory speech. The insult to Andrew Butler, who, uh, who apparently, if I remember right, wasn't even there for the speech, but uh, neither was Butler's cousin, Preston Brooks, who was a representative in the other house, in the House of Representatives. Neither of them were there for the speech, but they heard about it and they read about it. And so Preston Brooks goes to the floor of the Senate uh, I believe that this was early enough in our history. The congressmen and senators didn't have uh, sprawling office complexes like they do today. Uh, every member of Congress has uh, offices with uh, like meeting rooms and et cetera, and a whole thing, uh, whole areas to do business. It was not uncommon for senators and con congresspersons to do their business right there at their desk on the floor. So. If they needed to write out speeches, sign documents, do some reading, read this or that law, uh, they would just do it right there on the floor, either while somebody else was talking or while the, the House was not in or the Senate was not in session. So Sumner was sitting at his desk and Preston Brooks came up and accused Sumner of, uh, of insulting the honor of his cousin, Senator Andrew Butler, and the entire South and proceeded to beat the living snot out of Andrew Sumner with his cane. It destroyed the cane. It uh, Part of the story is that Sumner uh, was kind of, he came kind of lodged in his desk and at one point summoned just enough strength to actually rip the desk off of the floor where he proceeded to fall on the ground and continued to be caned. Sumner was 
this was a bad caning. Sumner actually had to leave Congress uh, to heal for multiple years. Uh, the state of Massachusetts chose to re-elect Sumner knowing he wouldn't be able to sit in Congress as a way of honoring him and his sacrifice, if you were. Meanwhile, Preston Brooks began to receive accolades and, and multiple free canes to replace the cane that was broken while beating the uh, dastardly northern abolitionist Sumner. The caning of Charles Sumner showed both sides of the country some things I, that I'm not sure they had seen before. It showed the North just how far Southerners would go about the issue of slavery and just how, how much they would be willing to resort to violence over things like, like honor and insults. And the Southerners realized that perhaps the abolitionists had more power in Congress than they really had. It started to rile them up for secession and going to war. Okay, let's go back to Kansas. There was a, an event called the Pottawatomie Massacre on May 24th, 1856. This involves the famous John Brown. John Brown was not a Kansan, but he had moved to Kansas uh, in the spring of 1855 to be part of the uh, Bleeding Kansas narrative, be part of the struggle against slavery in this new territory. This uh, The Pottawatomie Massacre had been uh, in response to another event, if I'm not mistaken, maybe the sack of Lawrence, but there had been uh, an event. John Brown decided he, that he was going to get his pound of flesh, so he and his sons went to a pro-slavery farm and took five pro-slavery men who, by all accounts, had nothing to do with any previous violence and hacked them to death. John Brown, in some circles, is considered a hero. And in some ways, he he was he struggled against slavery. That is a that's a good thing, generally speaking. Uh, he was also a very violent man, with with some demons, and he committed murder on this day. Now, the the five men who were murdered were pro-slavery. That's bad, but, did, but they were still murdered. Similarly, uh, there was something called the Meridacine massacre, which apparently was in response to the Pottawatomie Massacre, where five anti-slavery men were killed. There was something called the Battle of the Spurs in January of 1859. Uh, there was actually no open battle in this event, but it was called this in a very grandiose way. John Brown led escaped Kansas slaves from Kansas to Canada. Uh, there was no open battle, even though John Brown was sure there would be. Um, but the I guess the escape in the night just got the nickname the Battle of the Spurs, I suppose. We'll next see John Brown at Harper's Ferry. Okay, I want to skip ahead real quick into the uh, during the Civil War because I want to show you that the the violence of bleeding Kansas would continue on um, beyond the beginning of the Civil War. So most of most of today's lecture was about the events leading up to the Civil War. Let's look at a few events that happened during the Civil War. The Lawrence Massacre, like I said, there were multiple events that happened at Lawrence. The Lawrence Massacre was August 21st, 1863, where the uh, Confederate raider William Quantrill led his raiders into, into town and 164 civilians and 40 rebels died. 
This led to General Order Number 11, which was an army uh, order which expelled Missourians from four counties near the border. Also, one of the raiders, one of Quantrill's raiders, was not able to leave town. He was caught by the populace and he was lynched. The town of Lawrence was effectively destroyed. Now, in my family, there is a story that I had been told a few times. Uh, part of my family is from the town of Dayton in Missouri. Uh, it's a town so small, I can, in my head, I'm just going to count about seven houses. I'm not even sure all of them are occupied. There's a cemetery where a bunch of my family uh, is, a bunch of, uh, still is. I mean, obviously, you know what I mean. They, they died in and are in the cemetery. Uh, there's a church. There's a gas station that hasn't been opened in decades. And that's it. That's the whole town. The story that had been told in my family was that the raid on Lawrence led to the raid on Dayton. Jayhawkers came over into Kansas and raided uh, the town of Dayton and destroyed a, a college, an up-and-coming college in town that could have become just as big as the University of Kansas in Lawrence, uh, which is unlikely. So I did some research as I was preparing for this class, and I, I actually found a raid on Dayton that did happen in uh, on January 1st, 1862. So the dates already show that it, the raid on Dayton was not in response to the Lawrence Massacre because it happened over a year and a half before the Lawrence Massacre. Um, I, my resources don't really tell me a whole lot about it, except that there was a raid on the town of Dayton, and it did destroy Dayton, which was really small. There's no mention of a college, but there could have been, uh, you know, lo local lore could have been that, that uh, one of the local residents was perhaps trying to turn a Sunday school uh, into something bigger, into an organized school. That's totally possible. Even some of our Ivy League colleges started basically as a school attached to a church or, or with the express uh, intention of, of religious education that eventually turned into some of the greatest colleges on earth. Uh, so that was the raid on Dayton, really small event, but it was big in, in our family lore. Uh, there was also something called the Battle of Westport in uh, October 23rd, 1864, where a... Uh, general by the name of Curtis uh, supporting the Union defeated a general by the name of Price supporting the Confederates. Uh, this battle was uh, significant because of John Warnall House. John Warnall was a citizen uh, or a resident of Kansas City and uh, he was a one of the leading citizens of the town and his house was used as a hospital for both sides. So Union and Confederate soldiers were treated in the same uh, location in John Warnell House. And then we're, we'll talk about the Battle of Baxter Springs. Later when we talk about, uh, there was also a significant battle that happened near Butler, Missouri, but I want to save that for our lecture about African Americans in the war because that was the, that, that battle was the first uh, occasion of uh, black soldiers fighting for the Union. So let's talk a little bit about the Battle of Baxter Springs, which is just down the road from from us here. When I was in high school, Baxter Springs was in our high school's league. Since then, Erie, my hometown, has switched leagues. But when I was in high school, Baxter Springs was part of our, our league. Well, there was a, a battle in Baxter Springs on November 6th, 1863, 
where Quantrill is, is involved here again. He won the battle with only two losses, to only two losses of his raiders. The Union lost over a hundred, but they actually won the battle because they were able to keep Fort Baxter. And so we see here the political developments in Bleeding Kansas. We see the violence that surrounded those political developments, and we see that the violence continued into the era of the Civil War. So that sounds like a pretty good place to end today's podcast. I'm glad you guys joined us today. Um, I will get the next podcast out as soon as possible. Eventually, we will catch up with the class schedule. Uh, and then um, this will probably be more like a weekly podcast. So I'm glad that you joined us. And as always, it has been a blast. We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.